Well, this is part seven of our John series. And for those of y'all who don't know me, my name is David Tate. And if you have stuck with us this far, I am very impressed because we are on part seven of this series, yet we are still in chapter one of a 21 chapter book. Uh, So if you're with us, I'm very impressed uh, and I hope that you will stick with us. Uh, For those of y'all who this is your first lesson, uh, maybe you haven't seen any of the other ones so far, I hope you'll go back and listen to those as well, but... Um, Basically, what you need to know is that we are walking through the Gospel of John, through the fourth Gospel, uh, and we are just going verse by verse by verse, trying to get as much as we possibly can out of it uh, in order that we can have our own walks with God strengthened, but also so that we may go out and share the Word of God and share the Gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. And so long as God receives the glory due His name and that we make His worth known, I think this will be a beneficial study to all who partake in it. Uh, And that being said, uh, we are going through this in a very long and extensive manner. So rather than giving a rambling introduction, I'll probably just pray for us so that we can hop into the text of Scripture. Dear Lord, thank you so much for another day. Thank you for giving us this day wherein we can go into your word through which we can get to know you more, through which we can get to know you more deeply, through which we can just get to know you. God, I pray that as we go into this study, your Holy Spirit will be present with us, speaking through me as I teach and going into others as they receive. Lord, I pray that you will convict us, that you will lead us, and that you will guide us into a life that is more pleasing to you. We pray that you will receive glory in this study and that your worth will be made known to the nations by those who partake in it. We love you, God. We thank you for this time. Let it be honoring to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are picking up in John chapter 1, verse 35, and we're going to be going through verse 42 today. So I'm just going to read for us. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. This is John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. All right, so a few videos ago, a few lessons ago, we started walking through the narrative of John. We spent a few videos going through the prologue, wherein John lays the groundwork for the entire gospel. But starting a few lessons ago, we actually entered into the narrative of John. And so whenever we get to John chapter 1, verses 35 and 36, there is some context that needs to be filled in there, right? As we learn from the first words, the next day, right? The next day after what? Well, um, so far, if you remember, 
Uh, we talked that this event right here has, is probably taking place a few weeks after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. We read about his baptism in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We read about Jesus' baptism. Uh, and then we actually have an allusion to it in the last passage we went through in the Gospel of John. Um, but he doesn't actually recount the baptism itself. Uh, but So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that Jesus was baptized and then he goes off into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan for 40 days, right? He's fasting for 40 days, he's tempted, and then he comes back and presumably he goes back to the place where John the Baptist is baptizing and that's where the Gospel of John picks up, right? So in John chapter 1, we have the first day wherein some priests and some Levites, they come and they start interrogating John the Baptist about who he is. And John the Baptist basically, long story short, he tells them, you don't have to worry about who I am. You need to worry about the person who's coming after me because he's way greater than I am. If you think that I'm a big deal, he's a much bigger deal. And so that was day one. On day two, the person who is a much bigger deal shows up, right? And that would be Jesus Christ, right? So on day two, this is the passage we went through last week, Jesus shows up on the scene and John looks at him and he bears witness about who Jesus is. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's whenever John recounts the incident from Jesus' baptism, where he saw the dove descending upon Jesus. And in that moment, he knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. And that's because a voice came from heaven and said, Behold, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So, while John the Baptist attracted great big crowds to come and hear him, apparently he also had a group of inner disciples, as we learn in the passage we're going through today, right? Because now we have arrived at day three, wherein Jesus is walking by yet again, and John the Baptist turns to his disciples, and he says, hey, that's the Lamb of God, right? So day one, John the Baptist is being interrogated. He tells them he's going to point people towards Jesus, Day two, he points people towards Jesus. Day three, John the Baptist is standing with people, and he points them towards Jesus, right? So we've got this, like, handoff over the course of these three days, right? The first day is about John the Baptist. The second day is about John the Baptist and Jesus. It's kind of the passing the torch moment. And then the third day is whenever, literally, the people are leaving John the Baptist to go after Jesus. But that tells us, first off, that John the Baptist had his group of inner disciples. Not only did he have crowds that came to him to be baptized in the Jordan River, but he also had people who were following him on a regular basis. We don't know the nature of their discipleship because we don't get a lot of context to it, but if it was anything like Jewish discipleship of that time period, it seems reasonable to believe that they had devoted a significant amount of time to following John the Baptist around and learning from his example. Right? So at that time, there were basically two big aspects to discipleship. There was one aspect, which is called sitting at the feet, and then there's the other aspect, which is called walking in the dust, right? So sitting at the feet of the teacher, um, what you would do is basically you're learning from them, right? It's a metaphor, right? You would sit there as they taught you, right? You're sitting at their feet and you're learning the lessons they teach, right? The other aspect would be walking in the dust, wherein you follow this person around and learn from their example, replicating what they do, 
right? And so these people, they were disciples of John the Baptist. They were learning from him and learning from his messages, listening to his preaching, but they were also devoting time, staying with him, spending time with him day after day after day, and they spent time with John the Baptist a whole lot. That's the context here. John is standing with two of his disciples. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Right? So this is the second day after the interrogation, the third day in total. And John the Baptist is standing with his disciples, and he sees Jesus walking by once again, and he says the same thing that he said on the day before. Behold, the Lamb of God. And now if you're like me, and you enjoy reading, and you enjoy asking questions, Whenever you read this story, your curiosity may get flowing. You might have a whole bunch of questions like I do. Some of the questions I come up with whenever I read this is, first off, what happened on the day before? Uh, Because the day before, we read that Jesus was walking towards John, and John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then he says all these things about Jesus, but then we don't hear anything else about that day. What happened when Jesus got to John? What happened after that? How did the people react whenever, Jesus, uh, whenever John the Baptist said this about Jesus? right? Or then whenever you get to this passage, what did Jesus do when John first made his pronouncement here? Before the disciples go and follow Jesus, what, like, did Jesus hear what John was saying? What did Jesus do the day before when John made his pronouncement? Right? How long had Jesus even been at this campsite? When did he get back from being tempted in the wilderness? Was he just staying there day after day after day? How many people were staying there day after day after day? How many disciples did John have, right? How often did Jesus just come walking by? Was this like a regular thing? Was he like, like, did Jesus just casually like all the time just, hey, and just keep going? Like, what, what's going on here? You might have a bunch of questions, like I do. Uh, And basically, the short answer to all of these questions is that we don't know the answer. We're not given that information. The longer answer beyond that, is that the author apparently doesn't think that we need to know the answer to those questions. Uh, If he thought those were important questions to ask and important questions to be answered, he would have put the answers in the text. But apparently he doesn't think those are important. So you can speculate all you want, but you don't want to dive too deeply into the speculation. Bible warns a bit against that. But there's really nothing fruitful about it because there's no way of possibly knowing. The author does not think that you need to know. But there's also an important answer to that question, right? The short answer, we don't know. Longer answer, author doesn't want you to know. The important answer and the answer that matters is that God apparently does not think that it's crucial for you to know those questions, so don't bother lingering on them too much, right? Because if the answers to these questions were important, God would have put them in Scripture, right? Uh, the, the testimony of Scripture is that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Right? So Scripture states that within it, you have everything you need for proper, godly living. So if it's not in there, and the Bible doesn't answer all the questions you have, and it doesn't answer all your curiosity, that's fine. Uh, you shouldn't expect the Bible to. And there's, the reason I bring that up is because there's broader reaching implications, right? There's going to be a lot of places in Scripture where 
you have questions and it might not answer that. But you have to remember the purpose of Scripture. It's to instruct you towards godly living. It's to teach you how to properly relate to God. So don't expect the Bible to answer all the questions you have. We don't know what happened after John made his pronouncement to Jesus on the day before. We don't know how long Jesus had been at the campsite. We don't know how often Jesus walked by. We don't know how many disciples John the Baptist had. We don't know those things because it's not in Scripture and it's obviously not important. What the author and what God apparently thinks that we need to know is this. On one day, John the Baptist was interrogated. On the second day, he saw Jesus walking up and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And on the next day, he sent disciples after Jesus, right? So the first day, we have John the Baptist saying, it's not about me. On the second day, he's saying, it's all about him. And on the third day, he's actually taking people who were following him and sending them after the other guy. So we have this natural progression in here, and that's the main thing that God wants us to know, because I think there's valuable application here, right? So, that being said, his message on this day is the same as his message the day before. Just as on the day before, Jesus was walking up, and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So on this day, Jesus is walking by, and John, seeing him, turns to his two disciples and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And if you want to know what's meant by the Lamb of God, you can look at the previous lesson. I don't want to linger on it today because that would just make this lesson all that much longer. Um, basically, he's saying that this person is the chosen one of God. And there's different context beyond that. But he turns to his disciples and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so we read this in verse 37. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So here, these disciples hear John say, Behold the Lamb of God. And in response to what he has said, they leave him and begin to follow Jesus. And as we will see um, in this passage, this is very good implication that they are good disciples of John the Baptist, which sounds odd because they just left John the Baptist. But they left him because they're good disciples, and we're going to break that down. As we'll see in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, there are actually some disciples of John the Baptist who will come to be jealous of Jesus and the popularity that he's giving. And there are going to be people who come up to John and they say, Rabbi, what's going on over here? This person, this Jesus guy, the guy who you baptized, he's stealing all our followers. And the people who used to follow us are now following him. And they're going to actually get jealous about the fact that Jesus is becoming more popular than John the Baptist. And John's going to tell them that that was the goal of his ministry. He's going to say, he must increase, I must decrease. So that's John's goal here. And so what we see these disciples do show that they were good disciples of John the Baptist because they understood that that was his goal. These disciples, they've been paying attention to what John's been saying, and as he tells them that this is the Lamb of God, they probably have his words ringing in their ears. Because you can remember what he said. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
He said, I'm the voice preparing you for something great. I'm preparing the roadways so that when the king arrives, he's got something smooth to travel along. He also said this, I baptize with water, but amongst you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist said, I am here and I am doing some great things. But there's one coming after me who is doing things so much greater than I could ever possibly do. I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. And these disciples, they see this Lamb of God walking by and they realize that John is telling them that that's that guy. That's the guy that he's not even worthy to untie his sandals. What else did John the Baptist say? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John said that the whole reason he came was to reveal this person to Israel. Those disciples probably heard this, and it's going through their minds. What else did he say? He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So see, these disciples have been paying attention to what John the Baptist has been saying about Jesus. And so now, whenever Jesus is walking by and John the Baptist goes out of his way to point out to them, this is the Lamb of God, they follow him. We don't know how long these men had been disciples of John, but they apparently recognized the importance of this moment. Because for the entirety of his ministry, John had been telling them that he had been preparing them For somebody greater. And now John is pointing them towards that greater person. Fittingly then, whenever John points them towards Jesus, they leave John the Baptist and they begin to follow Jesus. And right here is where I want to draw a little thing to our attention because this is going to be something that becomes very prevalent throughout the Gospel of John. Because what we read... Uh, in verse 37 is this. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And what I want to bring to the forefront of our discussion here, we're going to see it multiple times even in this text by itself, is that often, or on occasion, John, the author, is going to use a word, yet in the context of the story, there's going to be a double meaning for the word or phrase. Right? So sometimes, as we're going to see multiple times, even in this passage by itself, Somebody is going to say something, or there's going to be a play on words. And for John, there's going to be two meanings through which you can understand that. There's going to be the straightforward meaning, and there's going to be the deeper meaning. Right? So in this instance, we read, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. The straightforward meaning is that, you know, Jesus is walking by. John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And they follow Jesus. They start walking behind him, and as we're going to see, he's going to turn around and talk to them, right? So in one sense, in the straightforward sense, they're following Jesus. They're just walking behind him, walking in the same direction as he is. But there's also the deeper meaning, right? We read, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, right? So the straightforward meaning is that they're just walking behind him. The deeper meaning is that they are taking the very first steps towards genuine 
discipleship. They are embarking on a journey that will change their entire lives. They have left John the Baptist. They are now following Jesus. They are no longer disciples of John the Baptist. They are now making their way towards becoming disciples of Christ. Right? So there's a straightforward meaning and there's the deeper meaning. And we're going to see that even as we continue. But before we get to verse 38, there is one question I want to ask. We've already addressed it a little bit, but it's still, uh, I think it still merits a little more discussion just because there's, once again, application for us. And that question would be this. Were these disciples abandoning John the Baptist? Because whenever you read the story, it's kind of messed up. John the Baptist has been spending all this time gathering crowds, gathering disciples, right? He's been doing all this stuff, and then he points them towards somebody else, and they just up and leave him, right? As we're going to see, these two disciples are going to be amongst the 12 disciples of Jesus. So these guys right here, like, they're, they're leaving John the Baptist for Jesus. Are they abandoning him? Because that's what it seems like. Um, but... Short answer, no, they're not abandoning John the Baptist. Um, but the longer answer would be this. As I've already pointed out, John the Baptist had been preparing everybody for the arrival of Jesus, right? So by following Jesus, these disciples were not abandoning John the Baptist, but they were doing the best possible thing that a disciple of John the Baptist could do. They were learning from his teachings and applying those lessons to how they lived their lives. If John the Baptist's whole goal was to point people towards Jesus, the best thing that a disciple of John the Baptist could do would be to abandon him for the sake of following Jesus. If John the Baptist is pointing them to Jesus and John the Baptist says, I'm standing here, then their response should be, okay, well, we're leaving you and we're going wherever Jesus is going. That is the best thing that a, John, a disciple of John the Baptist could do. They're not abandoning him. They are being as true to his teachings as they possibly could be. And to us, this might seem cruel because they leave him high and dry, right? They're like, okay, see you, John. We're following him. That seems kind of cruel to us. When you read the story straightforward, it's kind of messed up. These guys have been devoting their time to John the Baptist day in, day out, and then they just up and leave him. But we have to recognize that there's also application for this in our own lives. Because this is what they were meant to do. And in the same way, as ministers of the gospel, that's what we're also called to call other people to do. Because you see, our preaching the gospel should never be intended to create followers for ourselves. Oftentimes in churches, and oftentimes as pastors, and oftentimes as leaders, it is typical to get prideful and to get hungry for more followers, to be hungry to have bigger congregations, to be hungry for all these things that give glory to ourselves, and those can be good things. John the Baptist had a big congregation. He had a lot of disciples. That's not bad. The main thing is, are we willing to hand those things over to something else if that thing can point people towards Christ more? A lot of the times, I don't know if that's the case. That's what we're going to see in John chapter 3 with those other disciples. 
The other disciples of John the Baptist, they're not going to be fine with that. They're going to say, whoa, why is Jesus stealing our disciples? Whereas John the Baptist is going to say, whoa, 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 no. They're supposed to be going to Jesus. Our goal in preaching the gospel should always be to point beyond ourselves so that people follow not us, but Christ. As I stand here teaching this lesson, my goal should not be for you to think that David Tate is this amazing person. My goal should be to point beyond myself and teach you that David Tate is nothing. Jesus Christ is everything, and Jesus Christ is the amazing person. Jesus Christ is the amazing God. That should be my goal. And I've seen this in my own life, right? I've seen this begin to show up. Like whenever I'll be sitting in church and they'll call on me and they'll start talking about me, I do not like it when everybody's eyes are on me because it's weird. I don't like the attention. But whenever I can stand here and I can point towards something beyond myself, I have this holy desire to where I don't mind the eyes. Because I'm hoping that the eyes won't stay on me for long. They'll look past me and look to Christ. That should be our goal as ministers, but it's so hard because sometimes pride can seep in there and we want the bigger congregations and we want the followers and we want people following us, us, us. And I think that this goes beyond just ministry in the vocational sense. I think this applies to everybody. Anybody who's a Christian should be desiring to bring people to Christ. My job in ministry is not to just preach to everybody. My job is to equip the saint to go out and also make more disciples of Christ. All of us should be in ministry. Not vocationally, but all of us are in full-time ministry wherein we should all be engaging in discipleship and striving to disciple others and bring people to Christ. And each and every one of our goals should be to make sure that we're not doing that for our own glory, but we're doing it for the glory of him who sent us. That's exactly what John the Baptist did here, and that's exactly what we should do. We should make sure that we're not so focused on popularity and so focused on entertaining our own pride or so focused on achieving our own glory that we forget of our purpose to point people towards Christ. That is the goal. The goal should be to point beyond me. That's what John the Baptist did. He said, I'm just gathering these crowds so that when Jesus comes, I can send them his way. He didn't do that just to keep the crowds for himself. He did it so that he had people who could hear him make a big deal of Jesus. And that is the only justifiable reason to desire a big crowd. You should not want a big crowd to make more money. You should not want a big crowd just to tease your own ego. You should want a big crowd only for the fact that with a big crowd, you can make more people hear the glory of Jesus Christ. That should be the desire. And that was John the Baptist's desire, and that's why he had no problem letting these disciples go. And that's why there was no problem that they did leave, because they were being as true to him as they were to Jesus, because he was being true to Jesus. And so to me, there's very important application there that I don't want to miss out on, because it's so crucial to understanding the nature of discipleship. It's always that we should be being pointed towards Christ, and we should be pointing others towards Christ. That's true and genuine discipleship. But let's move on. I'll get off my soapbox. 
Alright, so verse 38 says this. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Uh, so, um, basically, if you can picture this, you know, Jesus is walking by. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And these disciples begin to follow Jesus, right? They're walking behind him. And then Jesus turns around and he says his first words in the entire Gospel of John. He says this, What are you seeking? And with these words being the first words uttered from Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John, you can bet your boots that there's a double meaning behind these words. Right? So, first off, there's a straightforward meaning wherein Jesus is walking. He turns around and he says to these disciples, Why are you following me? Right? What do you want? Like, what, what are you doing here? But on the second sense, there's a deeper meaning. Right? The deeper meaning is this. He's saying, What are you searching for in life? Why is it that when John told you who I was, you left him and began to follow me? What do you seek in life? What are you seeking? Right? This is how Jesus works. There's always the straightforward meaning and there's the deeper meaning that if you dig a bit deeper, you will learn so much more about who Jesus is and what he's here to do. Jesus turns around and he turns to these guys and he says, what are you seeking in life? What are you seeking? What do you want? As the author will tell us in John chapter 2, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he doesn't ask the disciples this question because he doesn't know their answer, either on the straightforward sense or the deeper sense. He's asking this because he wants them to respond. This is exactly how God works with prayer, right? We don't have to voice our prayers. We don't have to say them. God already knows what's in our hearts, but he wants us to because there's this relational aspect to living with God that he desires to interact with us even though he already knows what dwells inside. You experience this with other people, right? There are some people that you know so well that they don't even have to say anything. You know what's going on in their heart, but you still want them to say something because you want that relational aspect with them. And so Jesus, both in the straightforward sense and in the deeper sense, he knows what they want. When he turns around and he says, what do you desire? He knows what they're going to say back. But then even in the deeper sense, when he's asking them, what do you seek in life? He knows what they do seek in life because he knows their hearts. But let's look at their response. They respond to him and they say, Rabbi, where are you stay staying? Right? So he says, what are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And here we get the second of seven titles that are given to us in John chapter 1. Seven titles for Jesus, that is. The first title was Lamb of God, and now we have Rabbi. Which begs the question, what does Rabbi mean? Well, the author, to get his point across to the non-Jewish audience reading the gospel, probably the Greeks who are reading this, uh, he actually expresses what rabbi means. If you read the text, it says rabbi, and then in parentheses, which means teacher, where are you staying? Right, so the, the gospel author, John, he actually explains to us what this means. The word rabbi, it means teacher. Uh, more specifically, though, it actually means my great one. But it was used as a term of honor for those who held a position of teaching amongst Jewish communities, right? So it's kind of like how we call a man sir or a woman ma'am, right? Teachers, they were called rabbi 
It means my great one, my teacher. Uh, that's what it meant. Uh, and by the end of the first century, this term would actually be reserved for ordained teachers who had undergone the appropriate course of rabbinical instruction. So nowadays, if you encounter a Jewish rabbi, this is speaking specifically of somebody who's gone through the ordained practices and proper studies to achieve that status. Kind of like somebody going through seminary in churches, right? So they get a special title through that. But at the time of Jesus, that wasn't necessarily the case. At the time of Jesus, the term rabbi just referred to men who distinguished themselves through their strong desire to study and teach the word of God. So they didn't necessarily have to go to these rabbinical schools. They just had to be well-versed in scripture and be known for teaching scripture. Right, So there's a little bit of a difference. By the end of the first century, by the end of this century where this is taking place, that rabbinic structure was in place. At this time, though, not so much. In fact, rabbis at this time, they didn't typically come from wealthy or priestly classes. They actually came from more just the common folk, right? Actually, some of these people weren't even full-time rabbis. They would have other jobs. You know, they would work as like blacksmiths, tailors, farmers. They would be carpenters, stuff like that. They would do that and then they would, do, they would be rabbis um, on a seasonal basis, right? They would travel around serving as rabbis, right? So um, it, it wasn't always a full-time job. This was something where some people could just do it part-time. Some people did it full-time. Jesus seems to have done it full-time uh, to where he just traveled around preaching and teaching the Word of God, uh, which is really cool. Uh, and then one more little fun fact about rabbis, which really isn't important to the study, but it's kind of cool. Uh, while most Jewish men married between the ages of 18 and 20, oftentimes rabbis would push marriage off until their late 30s or 40s in order to devote more time to studying and teaching the scriptures. Right? So that's just something that, I don't know, I find that interesting. Um, rabbis sometimes, just to devote more time to studying the scriptures while they were young, um, they would actually push marriage off until later on. So the fact that Jesus was a single man at the age of 30, um, it was uncommon for Jewish people but it wasn't uncommon for rabbis, right? So rabbis, typically, they, they would get married a little bit later so they could focus more time on studying the scriptures while they were young. Um, Anne Spangler and Lois Verberg they say this about rabbis. Rabbis interpreted the Torah, explained the scriptures, and told parables. Some traveled from village to village, teaching in synagogues. Though they relied on the hospitality of others, rabbis were never paid. They often took disciples who would study under their direction for years, traveling with them everywhere they went. Study sessions were often conducted outdoors and in vineyards, marketplaces, besides a road, or in an open field. Disciples would then go out on their own, holding classes in homes or in the synagogue. Right? So basically, the reason I quote that is because it demonstrates that there was this relationship between rabbis and their disciples. Rabbis would travel around, kind of like we see Jesus doing, and he would stay in people's houses. They wouldn't necessarily stay at their own place because they weren't exactly getting paid for this. They would go around and they would live off the hospitality of other people, and they would pour their lives and their souls into people around them, teaching them the scriptures, and they would train up these disciples who traveled around with them. And what these disciples would do is that they would learn from their rabbis. We'll get more into this in a little bit. But they would learn from their rabbis in such a way as to almost be able to replicate exactly what the rabbis did. Right? So that eventually they would be able to go out and spread the movement. And these disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, they obviously regard Jesus as a rabbi, thus recognizing him as a respected teacher. And they decide to follow him. 
Uh, in John chapter 3, we'll actually have some of John the Baptist's disciples refer to him as rabbi. So we see that both John the Baptist and Jesus, they were regarded as special and respected teachers in the Jewish community, even though it would seem like neither of them actually went through any formal training. And we're going to actually see that the disciples of Jesus, they never went through any formal training either. But I would say that their training was actually better because they spent three and a half years with the Son of God, which is really neat. But let's get back to the story. In response to Jesus' question, what are you seeking? The disciples respond quite candidly, Rabbi, where are you staying? Right? So Jesus is walking down the road. He senses these people behind him. He turns around and he says, what are you seeking? And they turn to him and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? They want to know where he's going, where he lives. The Greek word for staying here is actually the word meno, which elsewhere in John is translated as the word abide, right? We're going to get a lot into the word abide whenever we eventually, I don't know how long that's going to be, whenever we eventually get into the Last Supper or the Farewell Discourse, uh, the word abide is going to be huge. So what they're actually asking, this is the same word, what they're saying is this, where are you abiding? And whenever you translate it that way, you can see once again, John is probably employing the double use interpretation here, right? There's the straightforward meaning and the deeper meaning, and you get that a little bit more whenever you realize what Greek word he uses there. It's the same word for abide. Now, it doesn't change the meaning, right? Where are you staying? That's what they're asking. But whenever you translate it that way, you realize that there's the straightforward meaning and the deeper meaning. The straightforward meaning is very simple. In response to Jesus' question, the disciples are asking him, where he's staying? Like, where are you going tonight? Where, where, where are you spending the night? Like, what hotel are you staying at? What, where's your tent? That's what they're asking Jesus. Um, rather than simply diving into deep theology, the disciples ask Jesus where he is lodging, with the implication being that they would like to spend time with him, to devote time to him, to get to know him. Right? So he says, what do you seek? And they say, where are you staying, teacher? Obviously suggesting that they want to go with him wherever he's staying so they can actually talk with him more. This serves the purpose of highlighting a key difference between education back then and education today. Nowadays, we are more concerned with the information we receive. Back then, they were more concerned with the application of that information. Right? So this, to me, is a good segue to talk very briefly about discipleship uh, because I think this is something that as a church, we should really focus on learning how to do. Uh, because like I said, nowadays we are very concerned with information. Whenever we come to churches, we just sit down in the pews and we suck in information upon information and we just like soak in all this information that it becomes so overwhelming that within 15 minutes after the sermon, we've typically forgotten what we've talked about. And that's pretty typical in most churches because it's all about information and all the different sermons are disjointed and not tying together and stuff like that. And so typically we don't even remember what we talked about just because the information is so much and so overwhelming that we don't even remember to apply it and we don't learn how to apply it, right? Because we have all that sitting at the feet aspect. We don't have the walking in the dust. We do a lot of learning, but we don't do a lot of doing. Whereas back in the day, the way they would disciple, whenever Jesus says, follow me to his disciples, he's not saying, just obey my commandments. That's typically how we take it. Whenever it says, I just want to follow Jesus, we typically just mean obey his commandments. When Jesus said, follow me, he was like, hey, I'm walking over there. Come with me. And they drop their nets and follow him. 
right? It was a very literal expression. He's saying, literally, follow me. I'm going over there. Walk with me. Talk with me. Watch what I do. Do what I do. That was what discipleship was back then, and I think that there's got to be some way where we can return to that now. I'm not going to propose any solutions here. I'm just teaching you how it took place back then, and I'm encouraging us to try to figure out ways where we can do that nowadays as well. Right? One scholar describing the customs of Jewish discipleship says this. I say one scholar because I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, it's something like Eketjuku Michael Oluikpe. I don't know how to pronounce his name. So one scholar. Uh, he says this about Jewish discipleship. After, 12 or th- uh, after age 12 or 13, gifted students joined the Bet Midrash, where the focus was understanding and applying the Torah, which is the, um, the first, like the law, uh, and oral tradition to daily life in a more intense way. Study was conducted under a famous rabbi. The student, usually called a Talmud, would attach himself to and travel with the rabbi as part of his education. His goal was to become like his rabbi and learn his halakoth, the oral teachings, um, until, he internalized, uh, until he internalized it. This continued until he became a full-fledged rabbi or scribe at the age of 30. Without training at the Bet Midrash, a man could not be recognized as formally educated. Uh, through the fir- though the first two stages of um, schooling seemed to have been affordable and accessible to the average Jewish boy, the third stage seemed to be for boys who were intelligent, talented, and from well-to-do homes. Right, so right there, he's describing the discipleship techniques that were common in, uh, in Jesus' day, um, but obviously they weren't required. Later on, it would seem like they would be required in order to attain the title of rabbi, but at the time, rabbi was just applied to anybody who was a respected teacher. Um, but we see here that typically a boy around the age of 13, he would decide if he was going to start learning a trade or if he was going to start studying under a rabbi. Right? And so some of them would try to do a little bit of both. Right? That's what we're going to see with the disciples. They're probably just teenagers. You know, they're, they're, they're teenagers and they start following this 30-year-old rabbi uh, because that's typically whenever somebody would start being a rabbi around the age 30. And so they would start learning their trade. They would start following the rabbi and they would spend all the time with this rabbi dedicating their time to not only learning his teachings, but memorizing his teachings and memorizing his sayings so that they could verbally reproduce them word for word. They would learn the oral law, the oral traditions given by this rabbi. That's why for the centuries that follow, we actually have these Jewish texts where they're saying, Rabbi so-and-so used to say this. Rabbi so-and-so used to say this. Rabbi so-and-so used to say this. They're quoting them because they knew their teachings. Right? And so that was what discipleship was. You would spend all your time with this person learning their teachings so deeply that you could reproduce them verbatim, but also watching their actions and learning how they responded to people, how they handled stressful situations, how they handled confrontation, how they handled all these things, what they did in order to love people. And you would follow these people around and you would learn how to do those things yourself. And how the rabbi responded would serve as an example for how you, as a disciple, should respond. And the word for disciple was a Talmud, right? And the plural is Talmudim. And so the idea is that we need to become Talmudim of Christ. We need to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And we should desire the same thing that these disciples desired. 
But as I mentioned, from other scriptures, we know that Jesus' disciples didn't undergo the formal education expected of most disciples. Whenever we get to Acts, we actually have people who are balking at the idea that Peter and John are so well-versed in the scriptures and speaking with such authority because they haven't been formally educated. They're saying, how are these guys so good? And then it says, oh, they realized they had been with Jesus. That's Acts chapter 4, one of my favorite stories because it's so cool. Um, but the disciples of Jesus, they didn't go through that formal education. As we're going to see, a lot of them were actually just fishermen. And then we're going to have some ta- tax collectors. The tax collector might have gone through some formal education. But a lot of them, they were fishermen by trade. They did the, uh, these other things. They were just these young guys who they decided to follow Jesus because they realized that the calling that he had on their lives was greater than any other calling on their lives. Right? And so, more generally speaking... This would have been how their discipleship would have occurred. And this, once again, comes from uh, Anne Spangler and Lois Verberg in their book, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. To follow a rabbi meant something other than sitting in a classroom and absorbing his lectures. Rather, it involved a literal kind of following in which disciples often traveled with, lived with, and imitated their rabbis, learning not only from what they said, but from what they did. From the reactions to everyday life, as well as from the manner in which they lived, the task of the disciple was to become as much like the rabbi as possible. And my point in saying all this is that the goal of a disciple is to become as much like their teacher, as much like their master, as much like their rabbi as possible. And if we desire to be disciples of Christ, that should be our goal as well. As a disciple of Christ, we should be constantly desiring to draw nearer to Jesus, to reflect him more, to mimic him as nearly as humanly possible. And then we should pray for the grace of God to encourage us and strengthen us so that we can go even beyond that. But my point in saying all this is that with the disciples asking Jesus where he is lodging, they are voicing their desire to become his disciples. That's what they're doing. He says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you lodging? They're not just saying, hey man, let's hang out. They're saying, we want to know where you're going because we want to spend time with you and we want to stay with you, which implies the idea that they would like to become his disciples. They're seeking him out and they're giving him a request. But that's just the straightforward meaning of what they're saying, right? He says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? That's the straightforward meaning. They're saying, we want to go where you are going because we want to become your disciples. But there is the deeper meaning here, and what they're saying is that they are voicing that they desire to be as near to Christ as possible. And this is another one of those cases where I don't think that they understood the implications of their response as much as the author did later on looking back on the conversation. Right? Looking back, he said, that is a good response. i got to record that here. Because that should be our desire. Whenever Jesus says, what are you seeking in life? What do you desire out of life? We should respond like the psalmist. 
right? And we should say, I desire to be near to you. Where are you abiding? Where are you staying? Oh my God, where are you going to be today? Because that's where I want to be. The psalmist says this in Psalm 27, 4. He says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. David, writing in the Psalms right here, he's singing this song to God, and he says, God, the one thing I desire is to be near to you. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that do I seek, to be as close to God as possible. And that should be our desire too. No matter where we're at, no matter what we're doing, no matter who we're with, no matter when it's happening, our desire should be to be near to God. And whenever you read this conversation in that lens, it is so much more insightful because these disciples don't realize it, but they are speaking to God himself. And God himself has turned to them and he has said, what do you seek? What do you want in life? And then they are looking at his face and they don't realize it. They don't know they're looking into the very face of God incarnate. And they look at him and they say, where are you abiding Because that's where we want to be. That should be how we live, my brothers and sisters. We should be living in such a way that when God asks you, what do you seek? What do you want? What do you desire in life? Your only response should be, I desire to be wherever you are. And I don't care what the circumstances are when we get there, as long as you're there, I am good. And we see that lived out in the life of David in the Old Testament. No matter where he goes, he just wants to be near to God. He's out in the shepherd's fields. He's meditating on the fact that God is amazing and he created everything. He's in the palace. He's focusing on God. Right here he's saying, I want to be near to God. Whenever David goes off to war, he says, God, where are you going to be? Should I attack? Should I not attack? Where do I go? I want to know where you're going to be, God. And even David, in his sin, whenever he sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed, And his own baby died because of it. What does he say? I've sinned against the Lord. He sinned against a bunch of people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband. He sinned against his kid. He sinned against the entire nation of Israel through that one action. Yet whenever we get to the Psalms, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Because in his perspective, the main thing was that he had distanced himself from God. That was the thing that crushed David. He says, yes, I have sinned against these other people, but in comparison to how much it hurts me to sin against you, O God, against you and you only have I sinned. Because he wanted to be near to God above all else. That was the one thing he sought. The Psalms, it doesn't say this is the greatest thing. He says, one thing do I seek, to be near to you. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that shall I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In the same way, that is what these disciples are saying to Jesus. And that is what Jesus perceives in their hearts when they respond. He says, what are you seeking? And he, they say, where are you staying? Because we want to be wherever you are. And so he says to them in verse 39, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. 
And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So in response to their question, Jesus replies with what will become a common theme throughout the Gospel of John. He says, come and you will see. You see, throughout this Gospel, we will see this petition, come and see, presented to those who seek as a constant petition to genuine discipleship. Right, so again and again throughout the Gospel of John, we are going to have these words spoken to somebody as a call to discipleship. They will say, come and see. Jesus says it here, and other people are going to say it in the future. And there are two aspects here. There's the come, and there's the see. Right, so he says, come, and you will see. First, whenever he says come, he is saying, he's, he's inviting them to come seek him, right? He's saying, come with me. Come seek what you're, like, what, whatever you're seeking, come with me. And then he says, and you will see. There's the seeing aspect, right? Here we have the promise of a fruitful search. And this is the promise of Scripture, Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. God promises that those who seek him will find him. Those who come will see. To those who knock, the door will be opened. To those who ask, they will receive. And so Jesus, recognizing the hearts of these two men, grants their petition for discipleship. And he invites them to come with him back to where he's staying. Jesus is walking. John says, behold, the Lamb of God. They start following him. Jesus turns around. He says, what are you seeking? They say, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. And that's the promise that is given to each and every one of us. Jesus says, what do you seek in life? And so long, as your response is, I just want to be near to you. He'll say, come with me and you will see. He'll invite you to seek him with the promise that if you seek him, you will find him. But there's also just a very straightforward meaning of this, right? He says, come and see. That was the deeper meaning. The deeper meaning is that we will reap that reward. The straightforward meaning is this. Jesus, conforming to the hospitality customs of the day, invites them to walk in his footsteps and lodge with him. Right? On both needs, their, uh, their needs are going to be fulfilled. He says, come and see. And then what we read is that they came and saw. So it's not a vain promise. He's not just vainly saying, hey, you should come and see. He says, come and see. And then immediately we see they came and they saw. It's fulfilled. His promises are not in vain. Exactly as he promised, so it came to pass. It was nearing evening time, around this time, because it says, they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Um, according to how John is probably reckoning time, the day would have started at 6 a.m. at sunrise. And so the tenth hour would be 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. Right? It'd be about 4 p.m. So it was nearing evening time. So rather than returning to their own lodging, these two disciples remained with Jesus. And that was the implication whenever they said, where are you staying? John is just giving us context for why that would have been the natural response. If it was like 9 in the morning, most likely Jesus would have been like, okay, I'm going over there. And they wouldn't have stayed with him. 
But it was getting near to evening time, so with hospitality, Jesus reaches out to them and says, yes, you can stay with me. So, this begs the question, what specifically did they talk about? Because we read that he says, come and see, and then they came and saw, and they sat with him, and they talked with him all night. Right? They stayed with him that evening. So what did they talk about? Once again, we have no idea. And if it were too vitally important, it would be in the text of Scripture, but it's not. So all I can say is this. Whatever they did talk about that evening, it was probably amazing. I imagine that Jesus was just breaking down Scripture for them and just teaching them all the amazing things within Scripture that pointed towards Him and whatnot. But I don't know. What I can say is this. Regardless of what they were talking about, in the end, they believed that He was the Messiah. And we're going to see that in a second. But let's move on. Chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Uh, so just this verse by itself raises three questions in my mind. That's how I like to study these verses. I read it, and I say, what questions do I have? And then I try to answer those questions, and that's how I end up teaching these. Right? So there are three main questions that I get out of this verse. Firstly, who is Andrew? Secondly, who is Simon Peter? And thirdly, if there were two disciples following John the Baptist, who is the other disciple? Because we have two disciples following Jesus now, right? They were following John the Baptist, now they're following Jesus. One of them was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Who's the other one? Hmm. So let's answer those questions real quick. Question number one, who is Andrew? Well, as we will see, Andrew is Simon Peter's brother, but he's also one of the disciples who ends up becoming one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Right? So he was originally a disciple of John the Baptist, apparently, but he now is going to eventually become one of Jesus' inner twelve disciples. Before that, however, Andrew will be the second person behind John the Baptist to testify to the identity of Christ, as we will see in the next verses. Andrew will become the first evangelist. It's so cool. John the Baptist is the first testimony, now we're going to get Andrew's. But despite that, despite Andrew's very prominent role here, he's not identified merely as Andrew, but as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And that's because despite being one of the first two disciples of Christ, and despite being the first disciple to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah, he never quite lived up to the reputation of his other brother, Simon Peter. At the time that John is writing this gospel, Simon Peter is the more popular brother. And so he has to say, this is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, so that people know who Andrew is. In fact, Andrew is only mentioned by name 13 times in the New Testament, four of which are in lists of the 12 disciples. Right? So uh, four of those lists, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts, I believe, we have lists of Jesus' 12 disciples. Andrew is mentioned in those. And apart from that, he's only mentioned nine other times. Of the 13 times he's referenced, uh, how many is it? Nine of them are in direct relation to his brother, Simon Peter. Right? So we have four occurrences which are in the lists, and then nine of those occurrences of the 13, nine of them he is directly referenced in relationship to Peter. He is listed as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Simon Peter's brother, Andrew. Uh, Andrew and Simon's house, right? It's always in relationship to Peter. 
which means there are only four references in the entire Bible where Andrew is not referenced in connection with Peter. And to me, I don't know, that kind of bums me out a little bit just for Andrew because he's such a significant guy. Uh, like, 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 to me, like, it's, it's just so cool. Like, I feel like he gets a bad rap a little bit because, like, I don't know. He's the first evangelist. He's one of the first two people to come to Jesus Christ. And I kind of feel bad for him. Like, I mean, I know that Peter, I mean, Peter's one of my favorite characters too, don't get me wrong. But I feel bad because Andrew is like one of like the, the first ones to come to Jesus. And every single time in the Gospel of John, every single time Andrew is mentioned, you know what he's doing? He's bringing people to Jesus. That's amazing. That's so cool to me. And there's application there, right? Every time Andrew's mentioned, even though he's not the most popular person, he's bringing people to Jesus. I think that should be our goal, right? I don't know. It's cool. But let's move on past Andrew so that we don't linger on this too much. Question number two. Who is Simon Peter? Well, hold on a few verses and you'll find out. Question number three. Who is the other disciple, right? If there were two disciples following John the Baptist, and now we know that one of them is Andrew, that begs the question, who is the other disciple? And... Short answer, we don't know. Longer answer, we have good reason to think it was probably the Apostle John, the author of this gospel. Uh, And I'm going to give you seven reasons internally in this story by itself that would make us think that this is the um, the author, um, this is the author, John, right? So, first reason, the author never identifies himself in this story or in the rest of, uh, in the rest of the Gospel of John, right? And we, ever, we never have the disciple John mentioned, even though he's very prevalent. Secondly, he feels no need to distinguish between John, the Bap- uh, between John the Baptist and himself, right? He has no reason to call John the Baptist the Baptist in any of these stories. That would make sense if the author John was a disciple of John the Baptist. He wouldn't need to call him John the Baptist. He'd just call him John because he is the other John in the story, right? Third, somehow he knows the words of John the Baptist verbatim, and he's giving us words that are not recounted in the other Gospels, right? So he has unique information about John the Baptist, which would make sense if he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Fourthly, he knows a precise chronology of the events in John the Baptist's ministry. He knows that on day one, John was interrogated. On day two, John saw Jesus. On day three, John sent these two disciples after Jesus. Right? He knows this precise chronology of these events. Fifthly, he knows the precise number of disciples with John the Baptist in this moment. He knows that there were two disciples there, not three, not one, not four, not seven, not zero. Right? He knows that there were two disciples here. Right? Which is, I mean, that's not too significant, but it can be whenever you put all these together. Right? Not, none of these arguments by themselves guarantee that it's John, but all of them together point towards the fact that it is. Sixth point, the word he uses for John the Baptist looking at Jesus is the word for gazing intently. I believe it's the word emblepo uh, in Greek. Uh, It's the word for gazing intently, which carries with it the amount of detail belonging to eyewitness testimony. So whenever it says that John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God, it's the word emblepo, which means to look intently. This person describing this sounds like an eyewitness who remembers exactly how John looked at Jesus. Which brings us to our seventh point. He knows the exact time that these events took place. He remembers that they got back to Jesus' place around 4 p.m., 
which, once again, would seem to suggest that maybe he was an eyewitness. And then, as an additional little um, detail here, additional defense for the fact that this was the author John, uh, we'll just go once again to chapter 21, verse 24, which it says that this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, right? So the author of the Gospel of John himself specifies that he is an eyewitness to the events that have occurred. So it would make sense to me if the unnamed disciple would be the author himself, because if there's only two disciples there, one of them would seemingly have to be the eyewitness. That would make sense to me. Therefore, it seems safe to assume that Andrew and John were the first two disciples of Jesus, which is just kind of cool to me. I don't know. Uh, we don't know the content of their discussion that night, but we do know the results of it, as we will see in this passage and the passage that follows. But let's move on to John 1:41. Andrew first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Right? So Andrew, as we will see is typical of Andrew, he's got to bring somebody to Jesus. Right? And so he meets Jesus, he meets the Lamb of God, and I don't know whether or not this is before they go back to Jesus' place or afterwards. I would think before because it says he first found his own brother Simon. It could be first thing in the morning, but I would think that it's first before they even go back to Jesus' place. He first goes and finds Simon, and he says, Simon, we have found the Messiah. That's amazing. Talk about a good disciple of John the Baptist. Just as John pointed him to Jesus, so now he is going to retrieve his brother and do the same. Right? This guy is a good disciple. He's like, hey, John the Baptist spent a lot of time pointing people to Jesus. Maybe I should do that too. So he goes and gets Simon, and he says, we have found the Messiah. And in calling Jesus the Messiah, he gives us our third of seven titles given to Jesus in John chapter 1. And to put it simply, we've talked about this in the past, Messiah is simply the Hebrew word for the Greek Christ, right? So we have Mashiach and Christos. Uh, they're the same thing. It just means the anointed one. So Andrew is telling his brother that they have found the anointed one, the chosen one of God that the people of Israel have been waiting for for thousands of years. As soon as Andrew learns the identity of Jesus, and as soon as he feels that it is confirmed that Jesus is who he claims to be, he goes and shares the news. And this is how Andrew becomes the first evangelist. Because that's exactly what the gospel is. The word gospel means good news. And it comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is where we get the word evangelism. Right? The U turns into a V, so it's evangelion, which would become evangelism. Right? That's where we get the word gospel, like the good news. The good news is being preached. And this is a fun fact about the word gospel. Back then, the word gospel was a general term that was used for whenever a new king came onto the throne, right? So whenever a new king was crowned, heralds would go throughout the local areas pronouncing the euangelion, letting people know that a new kingdom had taken power and that a new king sat on the throne. So whenever Andrew is going to Peter, to Simon, sorry, he's not named Peter yet. Whenever Andrew goes to his brother Simon and he says, we have found the Messiah, he is telling him that we have found the king. Therefore, he is preaching the good news to his brother. He is preaching the gospel and he is becoming an evangelist. And that's why I feel so bad for Andrew because he gets such a bad rap because barely anybody knows about him. Everybody knows about Simon Peter and Simon Peter rightfully, he should be known about. He's amazing. 
But I feel kind of bad for Andrew. I think we should talk about him more. Think about that. So that's exactly what Andrew's doing. He is going out and he is becoming the first evangelist. Within moments of meeting the king, he goes out and shares the news. And how much application can we get from that? You don't have to know all the theology. You just need to know Jesus. You need to draw people to him and you need to bring them to him so they can come and see for themselves. Right? You don't have to go to four years of seminary to preach the gospel. You just need to know the gospel. If you know the good news, you're good to go. There's a new king in town, and there's a new kingdom coming. That's what you need to know. We don't know where Simon was whenever he received this news, but you can almost guarantee that he wasn't expecting the news that he got. I mean, you can just imagine it, right? Imagine that you're just chilling. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's cooking dinner. Maybe he's just like at the temple worshiping. It's just a few miles away. I don't know. He's doing something. His brother runs up, grabs him by the arms, and he says, Dude, we have found the one we've been waiting for our entire lives. We have found the one that people have been waiting for for thousands of years. We found the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. We have found him. He is here Get excited. That's the incident that's happening right here. Understandably, Simon gets up from whatever he's doing, and he goes to figure out what the fuss is all about. And so in verse 42, we read this. Andrew brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked to him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So once again, as a model disciple, Andrew is not only going out to share the good news, but he does so in order that he might bring his audience back to the king. Just as John the Baptist did not receive the audience for himself, but brought them to Jesus, so Andrew is doing the same thing. He is a good disciple of John the Baptist, and he will become a good disciple of Christ. We don't see him bragging about finding the Messiah first. Rather, he keeps the message short and simple. We found the Messiah. Come and see for yourself. But he doesn't even have to say, come and see, because he just drags his brother with him. He doesn't have to say, come and see the Messiah. He just says, I'm taking you to go see the Messiah. And so he brought him with, and thus Jesus and Simon Peter meet for the very first time. But at the time... Simon Peter's name is not Simon Peter. At the time, his name is just Simon. And so, the moment that Jesus and Simon meet, an interesting exchange occurs. Jesus says this. He says, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Some people might read into that and think that Jesus is expressing his omniscience here, that he knows who Simon is without Simon even introducing himself. And that could be the case. It could also be that Andrew has told him that he was just going to go get his brother Simon. Um, but most likely, it actually probably is the first one. Right here, it seems like John is wanting us to realize that Jesus identified Peter without even knowing him, which showed that he did know him, but Simon didn't realize it, right? So it does seem like Jesus is expressing his all-knowingness, his omniscience in this case, but uh, don't read too much into it just in case we're wrong there. What I want to focus on is the fact that Jesus gives Simon a new name. He says, you are Simon the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. And John clarifies that the word Cephas means Peter, and the word Peter, it actually means rock. So essentially, what Jesus does is that the moment that Simon Peter walks up, he names him Rocky. That's basically what happens. 
Um, I don't know. I just always felt that really funny. The moment Simon Peter, the moment Simon walks up, Jesus says, "You are Simon, the son of John, but I am going to call you the Rock." Very cool instance. Uh, and there's actually some significance to this. This once again seems to be one of those places where there is a double meaning. There's the straightforward meaning, and there's the deeper meaning. Uh, on the straightforward side of things, it was common for rabbis to give their like their students, their disciples names that were characteristic of themselves. So I imagine Peter or Simon walks in and maybe he's like, I don't know, maybe he's buff. He's a fisherman, right? Maybe he's like a big guy, a big fisherman. Uh, maybe he's got solid arms. I don't know. Something like that. Uh, maybe he's just a big dude. Uh, and Jesus sees him, pats him on the shoulder. He says, ah, you're Simon. I'm going to call you the rock. I'm going to call you Rocky. Uh, he, he might just be doing that. That was a common thing for rabbis to do. They would look at them and they would say, okay, I'm going to call you this because that is your character trait. We're going to see Jesus do that with James and John. He's going to call them the sons of thunder because they are just like this boisterous group of people who just like, they're like, ah, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume these people? He's like, no, why? No, don't, don't do that. Um, but he calls them the sons of thunder because that's, it, it, it characterizes them. Right? So, right here, it seems like, just very straightforwardly, he sees Peter, he sees Simon, and he says, I'm going to call you Peter. I'm going to call you the rock. Uh, that's just a very straightforward interpretation of what's happening here. He sees him, and he nicknames him Rocky, probably, because he had a fisherman's build, and he was probably buff and strong or something like that. Um, but, there is the deeper meaning, and there actually seem to be very, uh, like, maybe three significant aspects to this that I want to lay out very briefly. Uh, the first aspect is that I think Jesus is expressing his authority, right? So naming something is an exercise of authority, kind of like whenever, you know, God, um, he named the day, he called the light day and the darkness night, and he gave Adam the authority to name the animals. Uh, and whenever you name a kid, you're naming the kid. Like whenever you have a baby, you give that child the name, which is you expressing your authority, or whenever you get married, you know, typically the maiden name is changed to another name. You take on the husband's name typically because that's, that's, that's an expression that you are now under a new household, right? So we have this idea that whenever you name something, that's an expression of authority. And so whenever Jesus names Simon, he's expressing his authority over him. And in doing so, he's actually accepting Simon as his disciple, Right? In this moment, he's saying, you're Simon, I'm going to call you Peter, just like rabbis often gave their students names. But then there's also a second significant aspect, and I think that's the theme of transformation. Right? So we have authority, but we also have transformation. And the reason I say that is because, as with other characters in Scripture, a change in name corresponds often to a change in character. We have Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham. We have Sarai, whose name is changed to Sarah. We have Jacob become Israel. We have Hosea become Joshua. That's one that people typically forget. Uh, then there's Naomi, who becomes Mara. And then now we have Simon, who becomes Peter. We also have Saul, who becomes Paul. We don't know if that was a change in names or if that's just a difference between Hebrew and Greek names. Um, but we do have certain aspects to where the person's name change suggests a change in character. Naomi changed her name to Mara because Mara means bitter, and she was bitter. Right? Uh, we have Jacob become Israel because he wrestled with God, and that's what the word Israel means. 
So Simon's name is changed to Peter because he is going to be transformed into a rock, which brings me to the third thing that I think Jesus does this for. And the third reason has to do with knowledge. So we have the authority, we have the transformation, and then we have the knowledge. And I say knowledge because I think that at the moment Jesus saw Simon, he saw not only the man standing before him, but the man he would one day become. John MacArthur actually summarizes this moment in this way. The nickname was significant, and the Lord has a specific reason for choosing it. By nature, as we will see, Simon was brash, vacillating, and undependable. He tended to make great promises he couldn't follow through with. He was one of those people who appears to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing. He was usually the first one in, and too often he was the first one out. Jesus changed Simon's name, it appears, because he wanted the nickname to be a perpetual reminder to him about who he should be. And from that point on, whatever Jesus called him sent a subtle message. If he called him Simon, he was signaling him that he would be acting like his old self. If he called him Rock, he was commending him for acting the way he ought to be acting. So what John MacArthur is pointing out there is he says that whenever you look at what Jesus calls Simon Peter throughout the Gospels, there's always a message conveyed. Whenever Peter is failing, Jesus calls him Simon. Whenever Peter is succeeding, he calls him Peter. And we're going to see that even in the Gospel of John because it seems like the author and Peter are very close. And sometimes he will be called Simon because he's acting like his old self. And he'll be called Peter because he's acting like his new self. And sometimes he'll be called Simon Peter because he's a mixed bag. And sometimes there's a little bit of both. That's the difference here. And so in giving Simon this new name, Jesus is expressing his authority over Simon. He's expressing the transformation that Simon will undergo. And he's expressing the knowledge that he already has in seeing who Simon will one day become. Right now he is Simon, but one day he will be the rock. In between, he is going to deny Jesus three times. He's going to make some big mistakes. He's going to mess up a lot. But one day he will be the rock. And he will be one of the leaders of the early church. And so that brings us to the conclusion of this lesson. Because here we have this meeting where Jesus has met his first disciples. But before we wrap up, there is one more thing I want to address. And it's more of an apologetic aspect of this passage. Mainly because sometimes people will read the account in John about how Jesus meets these disciples and they will say that it contradicts how the other Gospels present Jesus meeting his disciples. And so very briefly, before we wrap up, I wanted to address that question. Does the account in John contradict how Jesus meets these disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Because... Strangely enough, we do have the calling of the disciples. Of, we have the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So people will say those stories are different, so they can't correspond with one another. I want to address that very briefly. So let's start by reading Mark's account. In Mark, we read this. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were both fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. 
That's in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Very brief account, and whenever we get to Matthew's account, which is in chapter 4, it's very similar. Luke, however, provides us a little bit more detail. In Luke chapter 5, we read this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So in the account in John, we have Jesus meeting Simon and Andrew and John, seemingly, for the first time, shortly after his baptism and temptation, while they are still at the campsite of John the Baptist. In this account, it seems like they are meeting for the first time, and Jesus is coming up to them. He gets in their boat, they go out into the water, and they catch all these fish, and Jesus says to Simon, Andrew, James, and John, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So one story takes, up, takes place up in Galilee, out in the water. One, place, one story takes place down in Judea on the land. So the Gospel of John, it presents us in South Israel on the land. The other Gospels present it in northern Israel out on the water. And the, the question is, can these two stories be reconciled? And I would say yes. And the reason why I say yes is because you'll notice that the synoptics never say that this is the first time these disciples have encountered Jesus. And in fact, it actually makes more sense if it's not their first encounter. Because you'll notice how sudden they leave everything to follow Jesus. It's like, wow, did they not make any plans to do that? The Gospel of John actually would seem to give us greater context to understand the nature of their discipleship. It doesn't take away from what they did. They still left everything to follow him. But it gives greater context to what's happening here. Because you'll notice that this moment in the Gospel of John that we've just studied, this isn't a calling. This is an introduction. This is whenever the disciples first meet Jesus and they get to know who he is. He introduces himself to them. They introduce themselves to him. They're getting to know each other. And what we're going to see in the passage that follows, in the passages that follow, is that they're going to become acquainted with one another and get to know each other more and more and more. This is actually just giving us greater context to the story we read in the Gospels. So we see that this is not the first time that the disciples have met Jesus. And so, if I can, I just want to give you a brief chronology of the early, or I want to propose a brief chronology of the early ministry of Jesus. So, let's start off, 10 points. First, Jesus is baptized by John. 
right? He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Secondly, immediately afterwards, he disappears into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted while fasting. Thirdly, afterwards, Jesus returns to the area where John the Baptist is baptizing, and this is where the Gospel of John begins. Fourthly, we have the first day where John the Baptist is interrogated. Fifth, we have the second day where John points out Jesus to the crowds. Sixth, we have Jesus meeting Andrew, John, and Simon Peter. Seventh, we have what we're going to talk about next time, which is when Jesus meets Philip and Nathaniel. Eighth, we're going to have the wedding in Cana, which happens a few days later, which is the beginning of John chapter 2. Ninth, after the wedding in Cana, perhaps the disciples go with Jesus down to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. They probably do. Um, But then we have them going their separate ways, Jesus continuing on in his ministry, and the disciples returning up to Galilee where they are fishermen. And then tenth, after some amount of time, Jesus returns to the disciples and he calls them to be his disciples full time. And that's the story that we get in the other Gospels. So I don't think that these accounts are contradictory. I think they actually are complementary. I think they actually help each other and give greater context to the other to help understand. We are getting the first encounter here, and later on we're going to see how they are called to be his full-time disciples. Thus, Jesus is being introduced to his first disciples, or rather, they are being introduced to Jesus. And as we conclude this lesson, I don't want you to miss the point of what has just occurred. Because with this introduction... The world is forever changed. I don't think they recognized it at the time. I know Jesus did. I don't think that Andrew, John, or Peter could have possibly foreseen what was to come. But at the moment that these people met, the world was forever changed. Because you see, these men didn't know it at the time, but their lives were about to change forever in a drastic manner. These men didn't know it yet, but they were about to become the leaders of a movement that would change the world. These men didn't know it yet, but many of them would go on to die for the man that they just met. Here we have the first encounter of Jesus with his disciples. And they don't realize it yet, but they will die for this man. But before that, they'll live for him. And that's our encouragement for today. Because this moment is the moment that we all can share. Just as they first met Jesus right here in this moment on the, on the edge of the Jordan River, so we too can meet Jesus right here and right now. And through coming to know him, we can be introduced to life in the most abundant sense, not in the way that prosperity preachers will present it, but in a true and deeper way where we can have joy amidst the suffering. We can have hope amidst the tears. We can have love for those who persecute us. And we can have life in him who gave his life for us. And we can go wherever he would take us, even if that means following him to the death. At this moment, when Jesus met these disciples, the world was drastically changed. And at the moment you meet Jesus, the world will be drastically changed. As for next week, 
we're going to meet some more disciples. For right now, I'm going to pray for us so that we can get out of here. God, thank you so much for another day. Thank you for allowing us to go into your word. I pray that I didn't ramble on too much, and I pray that I didn't get too distracted in preaching this, but I pray that you will receive the glory as we recognize that you alone are worthy of our worship, of our praise, and of our hunger, God. We should desire to be as near to you as possible, and I pray that as the days go on, we will draw near to you, and that we will cling to you, and that we will pine for you, God. Let us not leave here unchanged, but as we go out into the world, let us make a change for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.